Oh God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, truly be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. As we have come to the end of this series and enter into the season of Christmas and the celebration of the birth of your Son, may our hearts be once again overwhelmed and awakened and inspired by this story and the story that you've been telling for thousands of years. May the distractions of commerce, portly men in red suits, candy, presents, all of that stuff, Lord, may all of that truly wither in comparison to the grand mystery, which is you taking on flesh and coming to this earth. And may we never settle in to seeing this story as just so familiar. One of the most radical, transformational, world-changing events in history. May we open our hearts and our minds once again to seeing that as we enter into this season. Be with us now as we study, as we learn, as we engage with your word and your story. And God, may all of my words and our words collectively honor and bless you in your kingdom. Amen. We've been in a series entitled Rest, and if you've missed any of those, all of those, of course, are online. We've been recording them and making them available through our podcasts and the website. And uh, we talked a little bit before about rest being not just physical rest, not just you needing to make sure that your schedule is taken care of. It's not just about that. It's about something much bigger, much grander. It's about a grand vision of your life coming into conformity with the grand vision that God has for this world. And so we're coming to the end of this, and I'd just like to remind us of this passage because it's been the central driving passage through this series. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, which I can imagine is most of us, if not all of us, at some particular point in our lives. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now the key phrase in there for me is rest for your soul. Again, this isn't just about your schedule. It's about the transient nature in which our souls often find ourselves in the variety and the mix of messaging of things that we experience. And so it is our hope that through this series and in this final uh, talk that we have that you will find rest for your soul. Today I'd like to share with you a message entitled Trusting the Mystery. Now, whenever I say the word mystery, I can't help but think about Unsolved Mysteries, which is this great show, if many of you know, some, I hear some applause, um, about all sorts of crazy things. Uh, there were sometimes police um, mysteries that needed to be solved. Sometimes they were a um, little bit scandalous or voyeuristic issues that we needed to try to figure out. And the entire premise of this show was not only, uh, you know, obviously good TV, but one of the premises was that there was something there that we don't know about and so we're going to do our due diligence and work to try to figure out exactly 
what is the explanation for the mystery. There's a certain level of certainty that we don't have, and after we do all of our work, we are going to get to that understanding, get to that certainty. Um, one of the other ways to think about it is that all of us have secrets that we're holding on to, and that is a little bit of a mysterious thing, oh, I, something I don't know about you. And as soon as I learn what those secrets are, or as soon as I learn what is hidden, or as soon as I learn the thing that you're not revealing to me, then the mystery is now gone. That is oftentimes what we think about when we hear the word mystery. Whenever I uh, talk about mystery or I've used that word in a variety of ways, there's usually the connotation that something needs to be figured out. Well, what I'd like to do is, if you would permit me, is to shift that thinking completely. Because the biblical narrative of mystery isn't about figuring something out. The biblical vision of mystery is something much bigger, much grander, much more awe-inspiring. It has to do with words like awe, like awesome. You know, whenever I travel anywhere outside of California, people learn that I'm from California. The first question they ask is like, so do you surf? As if all Californians surf. And like, uh, do you say like awesome, dude, all the time? It's like, no, we don't do that. And please stop asking any questions. So... Um, but the true sense of awe is this sense of, I, there's something here that I can't quite get my brain or my mind wrapped around, and it is inspiring. It moves my soul. It touches me deeply in, in a way that other things don't. I'm just truly in this sense of awe and amazement, wonder, amazement, curiosity. And then from a biblical perspective, mystery, if, and this goes to a whole other teaching that we could do later on, has to do with divine revelation. Paul will talk about the mystery of Christ, and what he's talking about there is that the mystery is that something has been revealed to us by God, and that is what the mystery is. It's a revelation from God. So I'd like to use this definition, however, when we're talking about trusting the mystery. Again, mystery is not something that we don't know and therefore are going to find out to solve the mystery, hence unsolved mysteries. Mystery is something that we face about our world that makes us realize, I don't think I truly get or understand what this is, and it's beautiful. It causes me to be in wonder and amazement and invokes within me a sense of this universe, uh, perhaps a divine sense of who I am, of who this world is, of how relationships work. And that just moves me. It's artistic. It's beautiful. It's wonder. It's amazement. It causes my jaw to drop. There are no words sometimes to describe this feeling of biblical amazement. Abraham Joshua Heschel is somebody who has written extensively about this. Here's his quote from his book, Who is Man? We manipulate what is available on the surface of the world. We must also stand in awe before the mystery of the world. We objectify being, but we also are present at being in wonder, in radical amazement. All we have is a sense of awe and radical amazement in the face of a mystery that staggers our ability to sense it. Did you catch that? A mystery that staggers our ability to sense it. But before I continue on, I think I kind of want to ask this question. Do you have this? 
much of our world has been driven into us through education, through science, technology, through a variety of different means that cause us to say, you know, you have certainty, there's things about this world that you can depend upon. And that moves itself into the entirety of how we think about theology, Jesus, faith, spirit. What I'd like to ask is, Have we engaged with Jesus? Have we engaged with the spiritual life? Have we engaged with the biblical story with this sense of awe and radical amazement? Not that we figured it out. You know, I've been doing ministry for a long time, and so I'm around in preaching circles, and every now and then you'll hear a preacher or a teacher say, oh, this verse in the Bible, yeah, I got that one nailed. You've got it nailed, as if you have plumbed the very depths of everything of what that verse is, and you've just figured it out. And what I'd like to suggest is there's something actually unbiblical about that perspective. That we've got this figured out as if the divine mysteries are something that we can hold in our hand and know with a certain level of certitude. So I want to ask you, do you have this? This is one of the things I love about Spark, because part of this congregation is the constant berating of everybody with a whole bunch of questions. Oh yeah, but what about this? Oh yeah, but what about this? But what about this? And what that does is it constantly moves us to this position of saying, yeah, I don't know if we've got this all figured out. Let's take that question and push even further. And as we go down that road further and further, we start to discover more and more doors open. Um, We've talked a lot about Jewish history and kind of Hebraic roots here. A lot of people have asked us, you know, about that. And one of the analogies that I've used is from C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia, where there's this, you know, wardrobe here. And, and you open this door, and you walk through, and you realize that there's an entire world that exists that no one ever told you about, and it just required opening of one door. And I would suggest that the faith journey that we're a part of, I'm going to talk extensively about this, the faith journey that we're a part of is exactly that. You open a door and you start to realize there's an entire world here that no one ever talked about. And I'm going to also suggest that this has extreme relevance in our world in a place where we think that we have to know everything, that we have everything codified, we have everything in a test tube, we have everything with certainty. And this is what we have to offer to our world. So do you have this? Do you have this sense of wonder and awe and amazement at who you are, your relationships, how this world works, what the scriptures are teaching us, how God has created us, how you are made in the image and likeness of God? And do you just sit and ponder every now and then, just go, wow. Do you stand in front of your mirror and go, wow. Now, (laughs) some of you might actually stand in front of your mirror and go, wow. Uh, But I'm talking about you stand in front of your mirror and go, somehow, some way, that is the image of God reflected back to me. Three things. There's a whole bunch I'd love to talk about. I was telling Danielle earlier, my problem is there's too much to say and not enough time to say it. So I've chosen only three things which a good preacher should do. So three things. Mystery is the biblical response to power. Mystery is the spiritual path to discovery. And mystery is an act of worship. We can, I hope this launches us into, again, further conversation, but I'd like to take each one of these and show you a little bit what I think I mean about why mystery is so important and why we should be trusting it. Number one, mystery is the biblical response to power. The story of the Bible includes all sorts of power struggles. Power is actually at the center 
piece of a lot of the drama and justice and mercy. When you take a look at the power structures that exist in the scriptures, there are some things that the narrative is trying to point out to us that the story doesn't necessarily outline for us exactly. Pharaoh, Herod, Caesar, you could go to the Pharisees in addition. When you see these people, what you notice strikingly about the narrative of these people in history, in the biblical narrative, is they know exactly how power is supposed to work. They know exactly how the world is supposed to work. They know exactly who belongs in what category, and they have the world figured out. Pharaoh understands exactly how his power comes. Uh, The Egyptians understand exactly how the world works, how the Nile gets its life, and how that feeds into through all the gods and the mythologies. Caesar knows exactly how this works by divine revelation. Everything to these people is absolutely certain. But there's a problem that they are incapable. These people are incapable of understanding awe and wonder and mystery. To them, the biblical story is that they know. And we have those same people today. We have the same kinds of power struggles today in which people with an absence of awe and wonder know exactly what is right and know exactly what is wrong. And honestly, nothing you say or nothing you do can ever convince me other words. In other words, it's an absence of mystery. It's an absence of wonder. It's an absence of maybe there's more. Maybe there's something else. Maybe this world is much bigger than my conception of it. These people, which we would call literalists, fundamentalists, hold on to power as the primary narrative of how they think about life, philosophy, theology, etc. Just like Caesar, Herod, Pharaoh, and then Pharisees later on, and others that we will get to. And into that narrative, the biblical story comes and says, but on the other hand. (laughs) And the reason why Fiddler on the Roof is so brilliant is because Tevier, who understands tradition, also understands, but on the other hand. And into the narrative story of Pharaoh, Herod, Caesar, Pharisees, fundamentalists, literalists, and all other people who have completely denied wonder and mystery comes the story of God's movement that says, wait a second, I don't think this world works exactly how you think it does. And let's now begin to debate and wrestle and argue with, did you see God here? Maybe you saw God here. Well, maybe God is working in this way. That's the beauty of of that mystery. This is codified, by the way, in a very lengthy collection called the Talmud. You can actually see the copy in that back room in the library right there. Uh, We hear people talk a lot about, well, the ancient rabbis said, and then they will fill in the blank. What you need to hear whenever you hear a pastor or preacher say that is they're talking about one side of the argument. If you read the Talmud carefully, There's one rabbi will say this, and then the next line, a rabbi will completely disagree with that rabbi and say, but you're full of it. This is how it should actually be. And so the Jewish tradition of which Jesus is a part comes into this world and says, those of you who think you know what this world is about, I'm going to come in and say, wait a second, there's a lot more mystery and a lot more awe and a lot more wonder here than you once previously thought. It's not just that you need one side of the equation. It's not just that we are created It's also that we are co-creators with God. It's not that we are independent individuals, which is the rugged individualism of American ideology. 
It's also that we're communal. It's not that we're just male, we're also female. Now that gets into a whole bunch of other stuff. It's not that we're just left, also right. It's not that we're just blue, we're also red. There's a lot of purple states around. It's not just that we're permissive, we're also restrictive. It's not just that we need good governance, we also need the consent of the governed. I mean, this list can go on and on and on and on and on. And literalists and fundamentalists and those who are in the power structures stick on one side of the column and say, I know exactly how this world works. And the biblical narrative says, no, it doesn't work like that. You need that, but you also need to stand in wonder and awe and amazement how the other side works. And the answer to power structures in the Bible is what's known as a covenant a relationship between the two. That God, who is the ultimate supreme authority in being in this universe, comes down and covenants with man and says, I'll make my side of the agreement, you make your side of the agreement, and we come into relationship. It's not simply a dictation of commands. It's a divine relationship with this God. And you are mysteriously... Have you ever read those passages where Abraham argues with the divine creator of the universe? Yes. Have you ever read those passages where Jacob is wrestling extensively with the angel and says, I will not let you go until you bless me? Yeah. Have you ever read those passages where the disciples are arguing with the Son of God incarnate on earth? Yes. Because the biblical narrative is not that, oh, divine master, you say what you... The biblical narrative is covenant relationship, and it all comes together. This is um, expressed beautifully in the most important commandment called the Shema. We've talked about that a lot here, which is the number one commandment from Deuteronomy 6.4, because the very first commandment and greatest commandment is to love God and to love people, but it starts with the word Shema, which means to listen, to hear, to pay attention. It is the first humble act to recognize that if I'm going to strive for power, the Shema beckons me, challenges me to lay it down and listen to another side, to receive and understand, to be humble, and to seek understanding of somebody or something that does not agree with what or how I think the world ought to be. This is the idea of perceiving, not owning as before. Engagement and covenant, not analysis and ownership. This is the beautiful path of mystery. Um, This is also the difference between a leader and a tyrant. It's the act and the willingness to be able to listen, to engage, and to enter into covenantal relationship with a subordinate. To learn, to understand, not merely to express power. This is exactly how it works in a marriage. How many of you can imagine a marriage that runs solely by power structures? Who's going to have ultimate power? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to have control? And the biblical narrative, and this is why I think the most beautiful analogy that God could give to a relationship that we have with him is through a marriage relationship. Because in a marriage relationship, there is a mutual sense of listening and understanding to give and to receive, to be in awe and wonder and amazement that I may not actually have the exact way of how this marriage should work. There's actually two of us in this thing. And if I could lay down my power to embrace an understanding of another, oh, then this beautiful thing 
can move forward. So, number one, mystery is the biblical response to power. Power is about absolutism. It's about ownership. It's about, I know exactly how this world works. And the biblical movement and narrative is about mystery and embracing awe and wonder and saying, that power does not work the way you think it works. There's a lot more here. Number two, mystery is the spiritual path to discovery. Mystery is the spiritual path to discovery. And this just excites me. There's a website that you can go to called The Scale of the Universe. And these people have spent far too much time with their software and created a scale of the entire universe as best as we know it. And when you take a look at this video, you can actually go there and you can click on a slider and you can see where man is and where the universe is and where all of these different sizes are. You start to realize that, holy cow, this world, like the thing that makes us up is really, really small. And guess what? There's more things that make us up that are even smaller than that. And then, and then there's even more things that make us up that are even smaller than that. And it just goes on and on and on. Now, science is something that I love to do. It's, uh, I consider myself very much an amateur. It's just something that I enjoy. I love reading about it. I love hearing about it. I'm definitely not a scientist, but my friends who are, I love hearing and studying and stuff like that. One of the things that you will hear when scientists talk about their work is the thing that drives the understanding of this universe is not, I know how this works. It is, I don't know how this works. In fact, it is the absence of understanding that pushes a scientist to discover even more and more about this universe from the very, very small to the very, very big. And the more and more mystery there is in that discipline, the greater and greater the discovery This is absolutely beautiful. The reason why we have more understanding about this world is because we had such grand mystery about it. Side note, by the way, if you have some discussions about science and faith, the more and more we discover about this universe, the more and more we understand about God. If God is the creator of this universe, we ought not to be fearful or shy away from all of these discoveries. And this just is absolutely total human height. That just blows me away. And then it just keeps going and going. Okay, this video goes on. Um, this is exemplified most recently for those of you who know about particle accelerators, which I know nothing other than what I read on Wikipedia. Um, but CERN, this is a place in Geneva where they've created this particle accelerator. It's been described to me as one, um, r- one really big physics experiment, like taking Legos and smashing them together and figuring out what happens. Uh, it's a 17-mile radius um, thing. I don't know. Go look it up. It's pretty phenomenal. It's been documented in this uh, movie, Particle Fever, which is available. And throughout this film, you hear that um, these scientists are just so in awe and wonder and amazement at this potential thing that you could discover. Uh, More and more particles, more and more understanding of the depths of the beauty of this universe. And the thing that drives this is the mystery. How does this work? I'm not quite sure if it's this number or it's this number. Now, I, I've only gotten partway through this film. Um, I keep getting interrupted by my own particle accelerator. So <laughs> every time, so I just had to throw that in there. Okay. Now, if that's true about the universe, 
if that's true about scientific inquiry and study, think about you and me for a second. Because the most mysterious thing about this universe is you and me. Sir Martin Rees, of, uh, he's an astronomer royale at the Royal Society in England, one, a brilliant scientist, has said this. Human beings are the most complicated things we know about the universe. It may seem ironic that I could talk with some confidence about a galaxy a billion light years away with some confidence. On the other hand, you would be foolish to believe anyone who tells you about diet or childcare. True? And what I would like to suggest is as we take a look at who we are and how we develop and how we experience God, embrace the beautiful mystery of who you are, how your relationships work, how God has created us, and the diverse ways in which God has exemplified himself, shown himself, revealed himself through your brothers and sisters. We have so many complicated, controversial issues that exist in this world today. And so often, the will to power, that impulse within us says, but I don't want to hear what you have to say or how your experience is, or what your experience is. But if it's true that we are the most mysterious and the mystery drives us to discovery, then embracing and trusting the mystery means that you who are so unlike me, let me hear, let me understand, let me embrace what you bring to the table. This is a little bit about what we've done. Just a couple months ago, several of us went up to San Francisco to walk through a labyrinth, which is a prayer path. Some of us have never done this before. Some of us were a little concerned that what are we doing? There's some spookiness, some fear about entering into some other kinds of experiences. And what I would just simply suggest is some of us, as we participated, learn something about ourselves by embracing a mysterious act and activity. By saying, you know what, I've never done this before, I've never heard about this before, but somehow God, through Celtic practices, through ancient Christian traditions, have, has revealed himself, and as I embraced that mystery, I learned and discovered a little bit more about me. Learned a little bit more about who God is. Uh, I think this is reflected in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. The other reason why I think this is important is because I think every single one of us in this world feel to a certain degree tagged with a label. It can start very early on by names that are given to us on the playground. It can extend further along as parents begin to identify certain key traits that we do or do not have. And those labels stick to us. It can further compound by our successes and our failures in life by what we do or what we do not do and how we're able to accomplish or not accomplish. And those labels on those tags just continue to compound upon us. Labels are certain. They identify exactly who you are. They have definition. They don't have awe. They don't have mystery. They don't have wonder. They have definition. And so we ought to label jars, not people. And if it's true that you and I are the most mysterious in this world, the most mysterious things that exist in this universe, then whatever label you feel like you've been carrying around with you, you can confidently pull, yank, strip yourself of that. 
because that label does not define who you are. You are far more mysterious, far more awe-inspiring, far more amazing than that label says that you are. Labels are definitive, and they lack mystery. But you are a very mysterious person. Say that to the next person you say. You are extremely mysterious. (laughs) So I would suggest that mystery is also the spiritual path to discovery. If you feel stuck, if you feel as if you're not going anywhere, mystery and embracing and trusting that mystery allows you to discover something new and more about yourself. Recently, there's been a lot of posts on Facebook about the Myers-Briggs temperament analysis and stuff, and my wife, Danielle, hates that thing. She talked about it earlier. And the reason is because of this. Are you whatever that temperament analysis is? No. You're far greater. And, by the way, given some of the articles that I've read that she has passed on to me, those things can even change. Why? Because we are not a label. You are far more beautiful, far more mysterious, far more awe-inspiring than just a label. Mystery is the spiritual path to discover. Last, mystery is an act of worship. This beautiful story that we've been talking about, uh, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, I think last week as well, where Jesus gets up out of the boat, out of his sleeping, and says, peace be still. There's this phrase that I love that the disciples say, um, this passage says in Mark, they were terrified, and they asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Please understand that there are some people in the scriptures, including disciples of Jesus, that know exactly who Jesus is. And those are the people that may have gotten it wrong. It's in this particular moment where they're awakened to, who is this person? In Matthew, uh, it says, what kind of man is this? A mysterious, I thought I knew Jesus' agenda. I thought I clearly understood what he was about. Take up your sword. We're going to go fight the Romans. We're going to overthrow all the powers and the oppressions. There are times and places in the scriptures where you see that people know exactly what this is all about or what it should be all about, or they've got Jesus pegged. And in this particular moment, the disciples go, wait a second, I don't think I get it. I don't think I understand. And including to the very end with the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus is having to describe to them, you know these things that you thought you knew, you understood? Let me, let me re-describe them to you. And the, the rest of the New Testament is filled with these arguments and these discussions about this thing that we've just seen, we have no idea what it is. Let, we have to figure out what has just happened to us. Later on in Matthew chapter 14, this is Matthew chapter 8. Later on, Matthew chapter 14, they're back on the water. Jesus is walking on the water. And it's there, those two connections, those two stories put together. They says they bowed down and they worshiped him. Because they're still so petrified. They're still so in a sense of, who is this person? Abraham Joshua Heschel also says, to pray is to take notice of the wonder, to regain the sense of the mystery that animates all beings, the divine margin in all attainments. Prayer is our humble answer to the inconceivable surprise of living. It is all we can offer in return for the mystery by which we live. Who is worthy to be present at the constant unfolding of time? Can you believe that we get to do this? We get to be here And Abraham Joshua Heschel says that prayer, this connection, which is also worship of God, 
is deeply connected to the wonder and the awe and the amazement and the mystery of you and I. We get to be here. We get to inherit this wonderful Christian Jesus tradition. We get to live that out in this world. And so it moves us to worship. Oh, you're not the God that I thought you were. You're not the Jesus that I had on my dashboard. You're far more big and mysterious. You have so much more grandeur. I'm in more awe of who you are. That would cause me to bow down and worship. Three things. Mystery is the biblical response to power. Power structures have certainty. Mystery say this world doesn't work that way. Mystery is the spiritual path to discovery. The very fact that we don't know moves us to understand even more and more. In addition to the scientific realm, that is true in the theological and the spiritual realm. And three, mystery is an act of worship where we start to discover that this God is so big. Wow. That's a God that's worthy of all of my adoration and all of my commitment and all of my dedication. So question, what does this have to do with rest? Let me see if I can do my best to sum this up for it. Certainty. The idea that we can know that we know that we know that we have it all together, that we've got it in a test tube, that we've got a definition, that we've got it written down, and that we own it has a shadow side. And that shadow side exemplifies itself in fear. If anything comes along that disrupts what I know, that's fear-inducing. It's threatening if something doesn't conform to exactly what I know to be true and certain. It's about power, control, and manipulation, as we've talked about. Defensiveness, the need to protect my own construction of the world. Certainty says, I know that this is how it works, and I don't want anything to disrupt it, which can be a form of idolatry. And it's about ownership and possession. So certainty has a shadow side. I'm not saying that there's nothing that we can be certain about in this world. What I'm saying is that there's a partnership and a covenant between this and mystery. On the other hand, mystery liberates. Faith and spirituality are found in love. To enter into an understanding covenantal relationship with another, not fear, like you're not like me. No, love embraces. And there's all sorts of implications for that. Covenant relationship, not ownership and tyranny. The embrace of the entire created world. You know, um, Danielle has quoted me saying, I fell in love with Jesus And that means I'll fall in love with whatever I find out about him, not my own construction of him. So if I discover something new about Jesus, then I embrace that as a part of this Jesus that I have loved. So the entire world is at our welcome because of this mysterious, beautiful nature uh, that God has created and not just our own accepted construction of it. And this is what I would suggest to you happened to the first Christians. If we go back in history, you start to realize that there were certain religious constructs that knew exactly how things were supposed to happen. And then all of a sudden, wait a second, Gentiles are welcomed in? Wait, this is a Jewish movement. You're Jewish. Jesus, don't you realize that you're Jewish? Have you checked recently? You're Jewish. Gentiles are allowed in? How does that work? That's a mystery. Wait, 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 this law, the Torah, the things that we're supposed to, that works with grace and Torah. What is going on here? 
The idea of a Messiah, the one that's going to overthrow the Roman government, ends up on a cross and crucified. And the idea that the resurrection is going to happen, if you read John 11 carefully with the raising of Lazarus, they know about a resurrection in the future. But then Jesus is resurrected in time and in space. This doesn't make sense of the things that I thought I knew were going to be. And these first Christians had to face reality with a whole new set of mystery and wonder and awe. Like when Jesus shows up on the scene, you start to realize this world is much more mysterious. And they start to create theologies and ideas and writings to try their best to describe what has happened in this world. And that writing that we have inherited today in our Bible invites all of us into that same awe and wonder and mystery and amazement. Just like the first Christians were disrupted with the things that they thought they knew, so you and I are now invited into a divine disruption to say the things that we thought we knew, they're actually much more beautiful, much more amazing, much more awe-inspiring than you thought. And this is exactly what this season is all about. As I prayed before, God with us, the divine creator of this universe, I kind of think of it in the, the sense of Aladdin and the genie. It's like, huge cosmic power, you know, itty bitty living space. <laughs> this is a mystery. How does this work? What does that really mean? What, what parts of Jesus are God? What parts of Jesus are, you know, all those questions that we debate about? Yes. And that mystery drives us into further beauty, drives us into further awe and wonder, drives us into further humility, drives us into embracing a beautiful and amazing story and invites every single one of us in to that story. I'll close with this passage from Paul in Colossians that I think sums up this great partnership between the two. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart. And this is my goal for you. Encouraged in your heart. That the world doesn't work the way it is. Be encouraged. The world doesn't have to work the way you think it works. That should be an encouragement. And united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Notice he doesn't put a theological construct in there. Although he does a lot of theology, in this particular statement, the mystery is a person to whom we are invited in to a divine and beautiful relationship. And in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's almost as Paul is saying, now let's go figure this out together. So, my friends, trust the mystery. Trust it. It is beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It moves us. It inspires us. It humbles us. And we as a community, if we entrust, if we trust this mystery, can you imagine what God could reveal in and through us, what he could do in and through us as we open our hearts more and more to this mysterious world. And that is ultimately where we find our rest. God, I thank you for your word and your stories. I pray that if there's anything that has, that I've said that has been a disruption of what it is that you have wanted to communicate, I pray that you would just simply block it from our ears. But I do pray that all of us in this room 
would be inspired more and more by your beauty, by your mystery, and we would be found in our souls to have such wonder and awe and amazement at who you are, that we would never simply take an idea and own it, but that we would embrace you and be loved. Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for my friends. Be honored in this place. May your kingdom go forth here on earth as it is in heaven. In your name, amen.